It's Friday, September 26th, and you're listening to Screen Talk, now available on iTunes, where you can review the show and also subscribe to each weekly installment. You can also contact us on Twitter. I'm at Eric Cohn, and Ann Thompson is at AK Stanwick. Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the chief film critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson from Thompson and Hollywood, who has come over to my turf in New York. How was your trip, Ann? All good, all good. Trying to get as much done before my laptop expired as so possible. We're scrambling to the last minute to get ready for the big night tonight because it's the opening of New York Film Festival and the hype for Gone Girl has sort of hovered near the roof for a while now. I think it's going to blow out the top once it uh, plays up at Lincoln Center and then there's a big after party at Tavern on the Green. So we're uh, we're all sort of expecting this movie to play well since the first round of reviews that came out on Monday were mostly positive and there's a lot of anticipation for this thing. Except uh, for Manola on, you know, who just weighed in at the New York Times. So the New York Times actually broke tradition. They usually run their review when a movie opens and this one opens next week. It it means that the New York Times is is actually trying to be competitive for, for once. Which is interesting as well because I think it also reflects just the degree to which, you know, we live in this climate where people are are ready for the first word on things or the earlier word on things. Right. And, you know, a movie like this, neither of us have seen it yet. Which makes me crazy. Which Anyone we're not happy about. But, but then other people are envious that we're going to see it tonight at the New York Film Festival. And we get to go to the press screening today at 5, which includes... The opportunity to see Venture and and the, and the cast and and participate in the in the press conference. Right. It's it's still you know somewhere near a first world problem that we weren't the first of the first to see this movie. Well, you for were in you could have if you'd been where it was. It was you you went to Fantastic Fest. How was that? Yeah, I like to think that I had a pretty good excuse there. I mean, we spoke last week and I, I surveyed some of the movies I really liked there. The, the rest of the weekend I, I thought went fantastic so to speak as it were it's uh it's a good time i mean uh, you know it's interesting to compare something like fantastic fest to these other more buttoned up kind of festivals new york film festival i think is not quite like that let's say well everybody's living in their own you know it's when i come to new york it's or when i cover even the la film festival it's sort of the same thing you're living in the city and you go occasionally to some of the screenings and the events it isn't like it's consuming your whole life right whereas uh, you know there are festivals like say when we were in toronto where you're just in the zone the whole time fantastic fest is a little different because while you are in that scene the whole time you're at one theater kind of hanging out with the same people and and sort of getting a sense for the the communal element, which is very particular when it comes to people who are, you know, excited more about more outrageous movies. One thing that was interesting was last week we were trying to figure out what the secret screening was, you know, and we were throwing around some big titles, like, for example, Inherent Vice. It turned out that the movie they showed was actually not something that was on most people's radars at all, Um, and it was not even a world premiere. It was a film called... Good Night, Mommy, which uh, premiered a few weeks earlier at the Toronto Film Festival. It's um, 
directed by the wife and nephew of Ulrich Siedel, uh, mm. the Austrian filmmaker. Mm. It's a first feature for both of them, and it's uh, it's pretty scary. It's about these these creepy twin ch- children who torture their mother because they don't think she's who she says she is, and um, some people really like it. And so it wasn't surprising that Tim Lee, who runs the festival, would show that movie. But the decision to put that in that secret slot, which creates a different kind of anticipation, is an interesting one. It's almost like a form of advocacy because... Everybody wants sure. to go to that screening. So I think sure. that's an interesting decision. And, you know, the New York Film Festival actually itself has uh, a secret screening on Sunday, which people have been sort of tossing around various possibilities for the most likely candidate. At this juncture seems to be the Noah Baumbach movie, mainly because it, it culminates at Lincoln Center during the New York Film Festival. That's a, true. That would be an obvious so. choice. And Most Violent Year is supposed to open... AFI Fest, but that has been violated in the past by uh, Lincoln and Spielberg and stuff like that. So we'll see what happens. Right. And, and you know, the other thing to keep in mind with this sort of thing is I think they would only show a most violent year at New York Film Festival. One, if distributor A24 wanted to do that, which, you know, possibly endangers relationships and all that kind of stuff. But also if the movie is really good. And it's it's hard to say at this juncture if it is. I mean, the secret... You sound are, dubious. Well, the trailer didn't look super promising, and I'm not a big trailer guy in general, but when it comes to movies like this where I'm just super curious, you know, J.C. Chandler is a filmmaker who I think has shown some potential, and then with All Is Lost did something really remarkable and distinctive, but that was, I wouldn't say an anomaly, it was just very different from the other kinds of movies he's making. I mean, Margin Call was, I think, a much more traditional kind of ensemble drama. Absolutely, and it was so. a very smart, I mean, he actually got nominated for that screenplay. He's a good good writer. I um, I want to compare, as long as we're on the subject, and I know we're veering off the, the New York Film Festival path, but... Um, the the movie um, All Is Lost. I've, I recently it suddenly struck me that that the movie that's out right now that is c- comparable to it in the sense that it's gotten rave reviews, fantastic reviews ever since it was first screened in um, Venice and Telluride, Toronto last year. Tracks. Tracks is a similar movie in the sense that you have this one person trekking or in the case of Redford, you know, sailing alone without anybody to talk to, you know, very few encounters with, with, she has more encounters with human beings, including the Adam Driver character of the photographer than, than Redford does. But it, Weinstein was, you know, not only decided not to push her for best actress last year, pushed it a year later now it has no festival stuff behind it. Opens it in September, which is actually early if you have a, a real Oscar uh, fight in mind. It's a very weak field for actresses. Why isn't Mia Wasikowska being taught? They're burying it. And they, well, they even had a, a picture, an ad, with Adam Driver like in the foreground, which speaks of desperation to me. Frankly, I was not a huge fan of this movie. Oh, I, I admired aspects movie. of it. Visually, it's interesting. It's a little dry, um, not just because it takes place in a desert, but it, it, it's really, it's just sort of, it's it's very basic and focused, and her performance, I think, is fine. Another challenge, if they were pushing this movie, is that Wild actually features some similar qualities. This but this movie's out first. 
That's true, but Wild is is certainly a bigger film in a lot of ways. I mean, Jean-Marc Vallée was in the race last just last year, or he had a film in the race, and it's Reese Witherspoon versus Mia Wasikowska. I think it's a story that's more accessible to North American audiences. I mean, these are sort of crass, superficial aspects. But well, me, what you could say is that Vallée figured out, you know, for better or for worse, he figured out how to make that trek more dramatic than 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 John Curran did. Um, you know, but what what carries tr- tracks for me is is it, it's the same exact idea of this of this young woman who just faces all sorts of danger. What she did is is even more challenging with the camels and the length of the of the trek and 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 the dangers involved and the solitude involved than than what what uh, Cheryl Strayed did but it, it's a, it's an interesting compare and contrast i have to say well, but i, 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 I think would... searchlight your to your point searchlight will do a much better job of uh, apparently of pushing uh, the movie well, one thing just to add to that, the point of comparison with All Is Lost is an interesting one because, you know, where, whereas that movie was well-liked, it was... Nobody went to see it. That's yeah. the point I'm and, making. Tax is already dead in the water. Yeah, they didn't even do well in the Oscar no. race in spite of the fact that it was Redford's best role in a long time. It, it, what it shows, and Locke is another example, where you have, where you have uh, Tom Hardy locked in a car, you know, alone for the whole movie. I thought it was a tour de force. I thought it was incredible writing, incredible acting, incredible cinematography, but nobody wants to see an actor alone for an entire movie. This is clear. <laughs> well, one thing I would say is just to kind of veers back to the New York Film Festival yeah. track is we're talking about movies that we like but don't really fit into the Oscar conversation. And one thing that I think is interesting about New York Film Festival, especially this year, is that it doesn't seem to be dominated by Oscar talk. I mean, Gone Girl is, we'll see. Obviously, we can't fully comment on that one right now. Birdman being the closing night film, but that's not a new entry into this particular discussion. Inherent Vice sounds kind of weird and silly, so I'd be surprised if it was a serious contender, but we'll see. Outside of that, it seems like New York Film Festival is sort of refreshingly focused on movies that are not part of that dynamic at all whatsoever, which is, as you can imagine, more my sensibility anyway. Well, there are some foreign uh, entries to be caught up with. For example, I'm going to catch up with, while I'm here, uh, Timbuktu. And there's some major documentary uh, entries which which people could check out. And, uh, of course, the most newsworthy is the Laura Poitras uh, Citizen Four, which I cannot wait to see, the one about Edward Snowden that just surfaced after people not really knowing when it was going to be ready. And the Red Army, which Sony Pictures Classics is pushing hard, uh, which is a great, great uh, story. I've, I'm aware of it because I actually met the, the, the Russian coach in, in Cannes without having seen the movie yet. Uh, so I'll catch up with that here. But that's a, that's gonna, it's a Russian hockey team. And of course, uh, while on the topic of a Sony Pictures Classic release, we can't leave Foxcatcher out of the conversation, which clearly this is the movie that, that this company is investing most of their awards kind of, kind of hopeful you know, uh, resources into. I they mean, have the strongest slate they've had in a very long time, and, and Foxcatcher and and Red Army are just a few. I mean, there's also the, hopefully, the Russian submission Leviathan. There's also the Argentinian submission, presumably Wild Tales. 
and uh, which is a great movie, and and uh, they just it's just it goes on and on. That's true, but I mean it seems and Mr. Like, Turner, right. of course. So so Mr. Turner seems like a movie that if you kind of ask around is is obviously very well respected and incredibly accomplished, but it's also the sort of thing where. If they only kind of do a medium effort, it could get a ton of nominations, technical nominations for sure. Just watching, you know, Timothy Spall go through this evolution and seeing this world kind of reflect his paintings to some degree, the J.M.W. Turner paintings. But, uh, I mean, the, with Foxcatcher, it seems like that's the movie where they, they see this one could really go all the way, which is kind of interesting because it's this really bleak, cerebral you know, chilling experience. I, I, I like it. I think a bit. the actors are going to be behind Foxcatcher, but that may be, you know, and maybe the directors and writers uh, will be behind it. But it's a small Talking Heads movie. It, it's extraordinarily well wrought. There, don't get me wrong. I'm I'm a huge admirer, but um, Mr. Turner, as you say, is um, what has to happen with Mr. Turner. This is one of those cases where the Academy is going to get it. They're going to see how beautifully made it is and how stunning uh, Bill Pope's cinematography and the, the incredible production design and, and, and all of that. And the actors will appreciate the acting. So Mike Lee is a known quantity. This is nothing new. Um, there's no great discovery here. But he, I think it's his best work. And I think the people at the Academy are going to appreciate that. Right. Well, since we're talking about movies that are either in the race or, or you know, sort of sort of generating momentum already. Uh, the, the other films that are not at the New York Film Festival worth singling out are uh, The Theory of Everything and uh, the other one being... Um, Imitation, uh, the Game. Imitation Game. If you look at the Gurus of Gold, um, which is a, a little group of prognosticators uh, over at Movie City News, uh, they weighed in just... Uh, this week, and and um, they were asked to rank the top five, and then the the bottom, you know, then everything else under that for a top fifteen, uh, without ranking. But if you look at that, if you look at that list, you can see that they're sticking with the knowns. They're sticking with Imitation Game and Theory of Everything and Birdman and and Boyhood. And the only movie that hasn't been screened yet that actually made it into everybody's top five, not mine, because I only put in the ones that I've seen at the top, um, was Unbroken. The, the Angelina Jolie. And it's really interesting, too, that there's so many women's pictures directed by women. Everybody's talking about this. The stats are horrible. Everybody's very aware right now of all the, the gender bias and, and, and the problems of reflecting uh, 40, you know, the idea that the 51% of the people who go to the movies is, are women and, and, you know, they're reflected in crowd scenes at 17% or, or you know, and then inside the industry, their, their, their participation is about 17%, which is sort of interesting um uh there are all sorts of studies that have been put out lately with multiple stats along these lines but we have angelina jolie very high anticipation for unbroken we have ava duvernay and selma and uh still alice which got picked up at um at uh Toronto. By well, wait a minute. What happened to Fury? Is that definitely out of the conversation? Fury is in the conversation, but it looks on the surface of things. It's opening fairly early in October, and it looks like an action picture. So, it. it I. I'm a big David Ayer fan. So, and, and I think that uh, it could be. Uh, it looks on the surface. It looks comparable to something uh, like. Um, 
Peter Berg's Lone Survivor, you know, some, a really good war picture that doesn't quite become, uh, an, you know, especially in a competitive, this is not a competitive year though. So right now I'm anticipating that we're going to, you know, as you, you're being skeptical about a most violent year, I'm watching all of these people sort of, oh, it's going to be interstellar. Oh, it's going to, you know, remember interstellar has to, has to compare favorably. I mean, that's the setup to not only 2001 A Space Odyssey, but gravity. I mean, gravity was something to, to, to behold. So, so he set himself up a bit there, even though I'm super excited to see it. Um, right. So, well, so each of know. these films has to sustain, uh, uh, you know, it has to be near to perfect. Well, I have to say, I mean, if I could select any number of different movies that are in this year's New York Film Festival lineup, that I like more to be sort of in the race, we would be talking about a much different dynamic. And I, I just, it's just fascinating to me to kind of watch the field narrow because it's always a reminder of, of the fact that it is sort of almost mathematical the way that this stuff works. I mean, if Interstellar had premiered, you know, two months ago, we might be having a different conversation right now. We just don't know. You know, whereas there are all kinds of movies that I've seen that don't even have distribution yet, that don't even have the kind of opportunity to be in that conversation at all whatsoever. And just seeing that stuff neck and neck, basically that there are two narratives with the fall season, one being big Oscar movies and one being movies that will be lucky to stand out in any particular way is always fascinating to me because it really tells you what kind of a cluttered marketplace we have to contend with, not only as journalists, but film, film goers. You're absolutely right, and and the thing that that uh, is also happening at this time of year is that you just have a plethora of would bes and hopefuls and uh, trying to get the headline that says this is an Oscar contender, which means maybe you do have to watch it, maybe you do have to see it, you know, like Barry Levinson's The Humbling, you know, which is supposedly going to be released in 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 time for for Oscar contention for Al Pacino, you know, that's not going to happen, you know, you just look at the reviews out of and 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 Toronto, and you know that 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 that's not going to happen. But they're going to make as, an effort to to try to get into that conversation so that people will pay attention. And it's that simple. Well, let me tell you about a couple of New York Film Festival titles that I've seen that I, I know will never be in this conversation with either within this period or within you know another period if they get released later on because I think it's important to single them out now since we have the excuse. One that I finally caught up with that actually premiered in Toronto was Time Out of Mind, which is the Oren Moverman film starring uh, Richard Gere as a homeless man, um, which is loved it. Really Absolutely extraordinary. Loved it. I mean, not only because Richard Gere continues to challenge himself with these different sort of roles, but you know, this is a this is a movie that he wanted to get made like 10 years ago and found the ideal director to do it because there's a, there's a rawness to the way that Moverman, who also made The Messenger and Ramparts, tells stories that makes you feel like you're really there. And uh, this the one, I think, excels at that. fabulous. Just fabulous. Yeah, and the, and the, the narrative behind it, that they shot this thing at homeless shelters with hidden cameras among homeless people. Uh, you know, it sounds like it could go wrong a lot of ways, but it really does feel like it's not not necessarily an, uh, an ode to that community, but an accurate representation of what it's like Very to be stuck so. in it. Um, so I like that a lot. And also as a point of comparison, a film that's on a, a, let's say, a different level of exposure because it doesn't have the same kind of star wattage. But it, it's a similar uh, turf is, is Heaven Knows What, which is a film directed by the Safdie brothers about 
uh, Heroin Junkies in New York. It's uh, based on the unpublished memoir of its star, an actress named Ariel Holmes, who was 19 when they discovered her, and she was a heroin addict in a really destructive relationship. And they had her write about her experiences, and the movie is essentially this uh, really gritty, unsettling adaptation of them. Uh, Caleb Landry Jones is in it, so there is a little bit of a known quantity to, to, to that aspect of it, but it's not a starry role. He's playing that boyfriend. And um, it's really remarkable because the Safdie brothers have been making these really uh, interesting underground New York movies for a while now, Daddy Long Legs, The Pleasure of Being Robbed. And they've always had sort of like a playful comedic element. And this has none of that. But it's another one of those kind of you are there components that really uh, stands out. And so that's one that I think while it did premiere Venice and play in Toronto in the wavelength section, the main slate at New York Film Festival is going to give this movie a different sort of validation because it's really a great New York movie, as is The 50-Year Argument, which is co-directed by Martin Scorsese and David Tedeschi, and it's a documentary about the New York Review of Books. Uh, that one was at Telluride in Toronto. But uh, what I really liked about this one was the way that uh, it doesn't do another one of those death of media portraits, like, say, page one, you know, about the New York Times, which I liked, but this one is really more about kind of the ideas that have come out of the New York Review of Books over the half century that it's been around. So that's one that, you know, HBO is going to air it a couple of days after it plays at uh, the New York Film Festival, so people will have a chance to check it out. But it, it Definitely does watch it, It's especially if, if, I mean, I lived through a lot of the stuff that's, it was founded in 63, and so um, some, it just remi- you know, it reminded me of some of those great um, cultural watershed moments, you know, with Susan Sontag yelling at Norman Mailer and Gorbachev oh, so on the Dick Cavett show, yelling at Norman. We, we love people yelling at Norman Mailer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's sort of like a, a running motif throughout the movie. Uh, another documentary that I really like that's in the lineup that we've talked about a little bit before is Seymour, an introduction, which is directed by Ethan Hawke uh, about a retired piano player uh, who lives on the Upper West Side. Uh, he teaches piano, and he's got this really fascinating philosophy about sort of you know how to deal with life. So it ends up being more a guide to you know creative satisfaction than it is about, let's say, classical music. And um, it's, it's another... So it makes sense know. that an actor would, would find this kind of analysis of performance and anxiety, you know, interesting. I, I, was, I look forward to seeing it. Absolutely. And, and Hawk does surface once or twice to kind of say as much, though it's not as uh, pretentious as that might sound. Uh, another documentary, just to kind of round things up, because it, it's actually a really strong year for nonfiction. I believe you've seen this one at the L.A. Film Festival. It's called Stray Dog from Deborah Granick. Oh, yeah. Deborah Granick, yeah. And this is... Very- really great follow-up to Winner's Bone. Not what you would expect somebody to do after a movie like that, but it's uh, it's a really fascinating story of this uh, aging biker who's also a, a Vietnam vet and who kind of puts his life back together. So um, it's another portrait of people, you know, scrabbling through through poverty and and uh, the challenges and and also people damaged by war. I was very moved by some of the. Um, so it, people trying to help each other, people trying to to give each other support in a way that I found very uh, very moving. She's a good filmmaker. This was something that she did um, partly the way a lot of filmmakers do now. They juggle 
projects and they try to see which one is going to stick. And she had an HBO thing and she had something else and all the other narrative projects, which were ambitious and, and worthy of her, I'm sure fell through. And this is what she actually got to make, um, which is a sad commentary. There was a list that the playlist uh, put together of the, you know, the, the 15 women directors who should be getting more attention from, from Hollywood and, and Deborah Granick was definitely uh, on that list. And, um, but she's never going to work in Hollywood. That's part of the reason why so many women filmmakers don't succeed is because they often insist on sticking with their own personal visions and trying to be ambitious and trying to be true to themselves. And whereas the men are willing to sell out for the money. It's kind of funny because sat on Saturday the uh, Ozzy Argento film misunderstood screens, and she, you know, recently said she was quitting acting to just make movies. So I, I haven't seen that movie yet, but it does seem to have some relationship to what you're talking about there. So, what are you looking forward to this weekend, Eric? Well, I have to say, I mean, it, I don't uh, envy any movie that's opening in New York this weekend because too uh, many. You know, there's too many plus in the next, you know. 24, 48 hours, you got stuff like the Godard movie and then you David Cronenberg showing up in Lincoln Center. So if you're a real diehard moviegoer, you're seeing that stuff. But, uh, you know, first off, uh, one movie that I, that I would single out just because it's interesting and it happens to be opening a little under the radar right now is called Kill the Messenger, which stars Jeremy Renner as a real-life journalist in the 80s who, um, or rather in the, in the 90s, who exposed uh, this, this interesting kind of government plot uh, that where they seem to have worked, uh, the CIA was working with Nicaragua to um, smuggle uh, crack cocaine into South Los Angeles, and there was a, a weird sort of uh, element there where they were basically supporting the, the Contra rebels, and uh, it wasn't really verified until years later. But um, when uh, this journalist that Renner portrays, his name's Gary Webb. Uh, got it out there, there was a, a, this really terrible campaign to basically crush him on a personal level. And um, the movie, it's kind of basic in certain ways, but, you know, that's always a challenge with any kind of portrait of a, of a valiant journalist searching for the truth. It's directed by Michael Cuesta, and I think um, the tone is relatively subdued overall, and it becomes less about what he's reporting on and more about kind of the desperation he experiences as you know, he gets forced into this situation where if he speaks the truth, he destroys his life and also the life of his family. So it's not bad, um, but it's also just not great enough to stand out in a very crowded marketplace. And so it's being kind of dumped into theaters now. You'll see reviews out this weekend, and I don't expect it to really stay in the conversation. So it's a little too bad because I, there's a lot of interesting stuff about this movie. It's It's not... Like I said, uh, I would say a big win for anybody except for Jeremy Renner, who I think is quite strong, but it's certainly one that shouldn't be completely forgotten about because there's some interesting stuff there. Personally, my favorite movie that's opening this week is a really weird one called Hellaware. Um, this is a, a really terrific kind of New York satire of, of the art world. Um, it's about this um, this guy played by Keith Polson, who's an actor with a bit part in Listen Up, Philip, and a couple other really small indies. Uh, and he's this, this guy who tries to find more authentic art than sort of the traditional stuff he sees around him. So he finds this crazy uh, sort of druggy band on YouTube that does a lot of really bizarre stuff in goth makeup. Uh, and they're sort of like an insane clown posse knockoff. 
and he goes down and, and tries to take photos of them and do a project of them and gets drawn into their crazy antics to the point where it kind of destroys him. It's really funny. It's really short, and it's got attitude in a way that you don't usually see with this kind of stuff. It's not cheeky. It's not quirky. It's really vulgar. It's directed by a guy named Michael Bielandic. Um, he made one other movie that I don't even know if it really got a release. It was called Happy Life, about this kind of kooky DJ who also can't really figure out what he wants to do with his life. So it's an interesting one to check out. I mean, I think that it's uh, it's so below the radar that it's not really, you know, nobody expects this movie to be a breakout hit. But it's also the kind of thing that's perfect for a VOD life for somebody to stumble onto. So I hope that it kind of stays out there and that people uh, give it a shot. Because Hellawares, it's only like 73 minutes long. So it's absolutely the sort of thing that you can squeeze into your day. And um, it's a nice kind of discovery. The movie that I would like to recommend is is Jimmy, uh, All Is By My Side, which um, was uh, written and directed by um, John Ridley, who, uh, of course, uh, won the Oscar for writing uh, 12 Years a Slave. And um, this came after years and years and years of people trying to make Jimi Hendrix movies with cooperation from the estate, which is, of course, impossible. And so he finally figured out, you know, trawling around on the Internet, that that there were lots of old Jimmy covers um, from from early on and when he was living in London and where he really broke out and and he 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 basically takes a slice of life of the young up-and-coming Jimmy really well played by Andrea Benjamin um and and his relationship with this you know posh um young woman who helped him uh, played by Imogen Poots and uh, it's it's just a it's a really uh well done movie I have to I have to recommend it and if if uh, given the movies that are opening, there's 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 three with really good reviews, and I I love the Two Faces of January, which is this very stylish sort of Hitchcockian thriller with Viggo Mortensen and Oscar Isaac and Kirsten Dunst, you know, based on a Patricia Highsmith novel. Really really fun and beautifully made by by um, Hussein uh, Amini, and who's a screenwriter turned turned director who did a good job. And then there's Pride, which is Matthew Warch's return after 13 years from uh, the theater director. Uh, and this is a charming and lovely uh, sort of portrait of a group, and it's based on a true story of a, a group of, of of gay activists who decide they're going to help the, the minors. <laughs> and you just have to see the movie to sort of believe it, because it's not really very predictable at all. It's a, it's a, it's a very rambunctious uh, if, uh, 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 what's the word? Ebullient kind of kind of movie. Uh, I liked it. Well, I would absolutely commit to go seeing that movie this weekend. But we're going to go see Gone Girl, so you know priorities are what they are. <laughs> <laughs> we live in that world now. I'm so. actually reading the book. Uh, the, the, oh the God! Page you better hurry turner. up. I know. I'm. I'm almost done. I'm it's almost airport done. reading, right? So you can. That's what I was working on when my laptop expired. Right. Well, I did that for Inherent Vice a few weeks back. I, I recommended it to, for a movie like that. You know, I don't. I don't know what the experience will be like, but the book was its own kind of thing. And you know, with uh, Gone Girl, I, I haven't read it. When I heard that you know this controversial ending hadn't been changed, I felt like it was less necessary for me to do that. But you know, again, when we see the thing, we can speak with more authority. So anybody then, who looks at the trailer carefully is actually going to figure it out right away. Oh, <laughs> so. God. You just, you just killed their box office potential by 50%. <laughs> well, on that note, Anne, I will see you tonight at Tavern on the Green, and we'll talk to everybody else next week. I hope your tux is in working order. Look no further. 
Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash Boost by Tax Day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. 